today we're going to be continuing in our series, uh, The Word, out of John chapter 13. We'll be starting in verse 31. Uh, and this is kind of picking up uh, after Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Uh, and then he said, you know, what I've, what I've done, do also to one another. Um, this is also picking up after Jesus revealed that Judas uh, would betray him by offering him bread. Uh, and then saying, what you're going to do, go do quickly. And so Jesus got up and left. Um, and this is where we're picking up here this morning in verse 31. So when he, Judas, uh, had left, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. That's a kind of convoluted sentence, <laughs> right? It's, okay, if, this, if Jesus is glorified, then God's glorified in him. If God is glorified, then God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Uh, again, reading it a second time is still kind of a convoluted sentence. Uh, and this sentence is going to make a little bit more sense uh, as Jesus continues on in his teaching. And so we don't have a ton of time uh, to really focus on this this morning. But as we get into John chapter 17, Jesus begins making these declarations of I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. If you are in me, then you are in the Father. And, and it's this whole concept of the unity and oneness of Jesus Christ and God is Jesus declaring himself to be God, uh, but then also the profound thing that we'll look at in John chapter 17 is then Jesus is saying, I'm God, I'm one with God, I'm in the Father, the Father's in me, and you're in me, and because you're in me, guess what? You're in the Father, and we're unified. And, and so Jesus is kind of pointing forward that a little bit within this sentence, and so it's convoluted in a sense, but intentionally because he's trying to say, like, me and the God, me and Father, we're one. I'm God. The Father and I are one. We're unified. When I'm glorified, He's glorified. When He's glorified, I'm glorified. And it's this oneness thing that's happening. So He's making this statement. We'll get more into the details of that later. Uh, but then He says in verse 33, uh, Children, I am with you a little while longer. You will look for me, just as I told the Jews. Uh, and so now I tell you where I am going you cannot come. Uh, and so he's talking about a sacrificial death that's up and coming. He's uh, ascension to heaven and, and that they cannot come with him uh, at that time. But then in the verse 34 and verse 35 is what we're going to be focusing on this morning. I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this... Everyone will know that you are my disciples uh, if you love one another. And so he's giving this command here. And, and as I was reading this, like, it was really kind of striking me. Like, like how many churches, and I know it's really kind of something that we ourselves have said at times. Like, like we want to be a known as a church that loves Jesus. Like, like we want the community to look at us and, and say, that's a church that, that truly loves Jesus. And true, like I want that. I desperately want that. I want to be known for that. But, but here what Jesus is saying struck me in a whole different way. He's saying, by the way that you love one another, then they will know that you are my disciples. And so as I'm kind of looking through this, it's, it's good and great, and we want to be known as a church that loves Jesus. But just as much, we want to be known as a church that loves one another. 
Because Jesus is saying, as we do that, everybody's going to look at, at this connection, at the, the group together and the way that they interact with one another and say, something's different. <laughs> they belong to Jesus. Uh, and so that's what we're going to be kind of focusing in here this morning on this new command of loving one another. The question, though, is then what does love encapsulate? Like, like, love is a word that's just thrown about so easily in our English language. And, and it, there's a reason for that. Within our English language, there is one word for love, love. And then we can add some adjectives and descriptors and, and stuff like that. Within the Greek original language uh, that this was written, there's five different words for love. There's a word for love between uh, friends, phileo. That's where we get the city of Philadelphia from. There's uh, the love that is um, more between a husband and wife in a physically intimate way, and that's eros. Uh, there is agape, which is God's love, and, and a few others that I'm blanking on right now. Anybody remember off the top of your head? Stergo, something like that. We can look it up. There's a homework assignment. <laughs> Stargate, right? Okay, Stargate, yeah. Um, anyways, but within our culture, we just use love. And we use it for so many things from, you know, the love of a husband that has for his wife and a wife for a husband, the love that we have for Jesus, uh, and the love that we have for chili cheese fries. <laughs> right? Like, like, I love these things. They're so good. And, and yet, when we actually go up to our spouse and say, I love you like chili cheese fries, <laughs> it means something completely different. And, and that's really what's causing some of the problem within the world uh, of when it says that we should love one another. Um, and we even we're looking at this commandment, we should love one another. If we look at it from the perspective of our culture, it gets really watered down. Because we have statements all over the place that, that love is love and, and all these other different things. But what are they actually meaning in that? And that doesn't reflect what this word here, you should love one another, is. Because in the Greek, this is agape. This isn't like brotherly love. This isn't, you know, the eros love. It's not the phileo love. Um, but rather, it is the love that God showed that was represented in Jesus coming to the cross. It is a, a selfless, sacrificial love that does not expect return, but rather offers um, to help. It's a desire to be the best for the other, to do the best. It's desiring the best for the other person, right? And, and so in that case, as you know, Jesus is walking the earth and reflecting that love to people. He's, he's talking to the disciples and the broken of the world, and, and he's very compassionate, very merciful, very gracious. You think of the woman who was caught in adultery and dragged before him and, and, and to be threatened to be stoned. And, and in that moment, he's like, all right, who without sin cast the first stone? And, and everybody leaves. And then his words to her is, is there no one left to accuse you? No. Well, neither do I. Like, you're forgiven. Get up and sin no more. Like, there's this grace and this mercy. And, and yet, when Jesus walks into the temple, and they're selling stuff all over the place, what does he do? Takes a bunch of cords, makes a whip, and cleans house. Kicks everybody out, flips everything over. 
He's talking to the Pharisees. And he's saying, you brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs. Doesn't sound loving. But the aspect of agape love, the aspect of ultimate and perfect love, it is loving. Because he wants the best for the Pharisees. And where they're at is a need to be confronted in their spiritual pride and this false religion that they've kind of constructed around their own ideals. And so love in that moment was to confront them. And love in the moment of the woman caught in adultery was grace and mercy. You look at Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee, and he's meeting with Jesus. And Jesus has a very tender and intimate conversation with him. And so this idea of love within this, again, is a sacrificial love, not expecting return, but desiring the best for the other person. And that best means everything that God has to offer within the reality of his existence and creation. We want people to know about him. We want people to to follow God. It's not a love that says, well, I'm going to do my thing and you're going to do your thing and we'll both just be okay with that. That's the kind of love that our culture is trying to propagate around here that says, well, that's what love is. Just kind of letting everybody do their own thing and let's not have conflict. What the love that God gave to us that we ought to reflect to the world is the love is, I desire the best for you. And because of that, I, I want to show you Jesus. Now you need to make your own choice. I'm not going to shove it down your throat. I'm not going to try and control you or, or say this is what you have to do. But rather... This is who Jesus is. This is the reality of existence. There is a God who created us. Sin separates you from him. And it's only through repentance that you can be reconciled because Jesus died on the cross. That is a reflection of love. That is the the kind of love that is in here. And it's not the kind of love that gets upset when we don't get what we want. It's not the kind of love that, that says, well, I don't feel loved. Because I'm pretty sure the Pharisees, as they're getting chased out of the temple with a whip, didn't feel loved at that moment. But it was love. It was confronting where they needed to be confronting. Uh, And so this is the type of love that, again, is desiring the ultimate best in the light of Jesus uh, and the cross. But the other thing that's really interesting within this passage is that Jesus says, I give you a new command Love one another. Is it a new command? Not really, right? Like like you look back to Matthew chapter 12, one of the scribes approaches um, Jesus, and as Jesus is debating and answered well, he asks him, which command is the most important command of all? Talking about the commands within the Mosaic law. And Jesus answered in verse 29, The most important is this, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. And so the concept of of loving one another isn't a new concept. So did Jesus make a mistake here? Did he just forget? Like, oh yeah, I already told them this. I forgot that I told them this, and so here's the new command, like love one another. No, he's being very intentional about this. And so what he says, again, I give you a new command, love one another, and then here's what's new. The standard by which this love is to be shown. Love one another. 
just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. This is the new command. The love that I've shown while I'm here on earth, that's how you're supposed to love one another. He just gave a, a physical example of that earlier in the chapter by washing their feet and saying, I did this, do this also to one another. And we looked into that, that sacrificial serving uh, to one another in humility. But Jesus is saying, like, like I've loved you. Or you just look back at everything that Jesus has done within his life and, and showing the love that he has for them, the love that he has for other people. He didn't have a house. Like, literally, his, his mission was to, like, walk around and reveal the gospel to people and, and to show them the light of salvation. When people were hungry, he fed them. When they were sick, he healed them. Like, his life was a sacrifice showing the compassion that he had. Even heading up towards the cross, which we looked at last week, that, that ultimate aspect of showing love in dying for us. He's shown us love in all of these ways, uh, even within the passage here in John chapter 13 that we're looking at, the love that he shows to Judas. Uh, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but we're going to back up here a few verses and look at this. Uh, in John chapter 13, beginning in verse 21. So they're, they're in the midst of the dinner, the midst of the conversation. And Jesus says, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. And so the disciples started looking at one another, uncertain of which one he was speaking about. Uh, this would have been a really awkward situation, I think, right? Because, like, if I'm sitting here in this room saying, okay, um, one of you just farted. You know, who was it? And, and we're kind of, like, looking around, but there's, like, 60 people in here, and we're just kind of like, oh, well, like, we really can't tell, right? But, but like, here's Jesus sitting in a room with most likely 12 other people, maybe a few others, 12 to 20, let's say, and he's saying, one of you is going to betray me. Then they start looking around. Imagine if there's only 20 people in this room, right? Now you start wondering, who is it going to be? And so I, I love this next thing here uh, in verse 23. One of his disciples, the one that Jesus loved, anybody know who that is? John. He, he wrote this book, and like, he didn't want to put in his name in there. Like, I'm John, the one that Jesus loved, but, but he's kind of pointing to that. The one that Jesus loved uh, was reclining close beside Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to him to find out who it was he was talking about. So like, Jesus is just sitting there, drop this bomb. One of you is going to betray me. Everybody's kind of laying there. Again, remember the table's maybe this high off the ground. And they're all kind of reclining on their left side um, in order to, like, um, to eat. And, and Peter's over there, and he's looking at John like, you know? <laughs> and, and so here's this thing happening. Verse 25, so he leaned back against Jesus. So, again, they're all kind of laying down on the ground, and, and John just kind of, like, rolls back and, like, Hey, Lord, who is it? <laughs> like, would you tell me I'm the one that you love? You can tell me. You know, obviously it's not me because you love me. So this awkward situation happening, everybody's looking at it. I, again, you've got 12 to 20 people in there. I'm guessing everybody saw Peter like, ah, 
you know, and then John leaning back. And then, so then Jesus replies by saying, he's the one that I give the piece of bread to after I have dipped it. When he dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. After Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. And so Jesus told him, what you're doing, go do quickly. Earlier, again, in the beginning of chapter 13, it said Judas had arrived with Satan having putting it into his heart in order to betray Jesus. So again, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Jesus, fully knowing everything that was happening, uh, washed Jesus, or Judas' feet. Now he does this. And, and looking at some of the commentary uh, by Andrew Patterson, um, there was a couple of really unique things in here. Uh, first of all, is that the dipping of the bread. Um, according to this word, it's a unique New Testament Greek word that refers to the especially tasty morsel that was given by the host to a special guest as a mark of honor. And, and so think of like a bowl of stew, and as you're eating that stew or whatever it is, you got like the best thing at the end of it. Just, just this morning, uh, we were having some... Um, brownie-type breakfast. Uh, It's something we make with cream cheese and some cocoa powder and some maple syrup. We don't add extra sugar and and stuff into it. Uh, But we're we're eating that, and and I'm like, I finished it, and there's just like this little last bit within it. And, And I'm like, oh, I just feel too lazy to like go get another piece or to like stick my finger in it and like, but it was really, really good. And my wife was sitting there like, are you going to have that? <laughs> you know, so I then slid it over and, and, and she finished. That's what it's talking about, right? Like, like something that's so good that there's just a little bit left. And, and Jesus could have taken it for himself, but, but it's like this, this honor. It's this present saying, this is the last good piece. Would you have it? And that's what this commentator is saying, the Greek word within this passage is saying, is what Jesus did for Judas. Here's this last bit. Would you have it? The other thing that that he says within this, uh, and again, I wouldn't say that this is a rock-solid argument, um, but it makes sense um, in that, you know, they're sitting around this table, and there's a head of the table and a foot of the table, right? And, and the position of highest honor was more towards the, the head of the table. And the position of the lowest honor is more towards the bottom of the table. And so what this commentator is supposing is that for Jesus to be able to dip the bread and then hand it to Judas without getting up meant that Judas was towards the head of the table. That, that he was in a higher place of honor than, than being further away from Jesus. And so what this commentator is saying and and supposing within this is that even knowing that Judas was heading up to betray him, uh, Jesus invited him to the dinner. He asked him to be in a higher place of honor, closer to him. He he washed his feet. He dipped the morsel into the last bit uh, in order to give it to Judas. All aspects of honor and love and care and special treatment towards the one that's going to betray him. Possibly in the sense of, as he shows this love towards Judas, saying, you don't have to do this. Like, this is me showing love to you. This is me sacrificially doing this and hoping that that Judas changes his mind and God does something else uh, because the cross has to happen, but it doesn't have to happen with Judas. 
And yet, Judas still betrays him. But, it, but it's showing this love that Jesus had sacrificially towards the one that he knew he'd betray. Also within this passage are, are other examples of love. Uh, love that um, Peter had for Jesus and Jesus had for Peter. Um, later on in verse 36, when, right after Jesus said, where I'm going, you can't follow. And so Jesus replied, or Simon says rather, in verse 36, uh, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, well, I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Lord, Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Right here is an aspect of Peter's love, right? I lay my life down for you. Jesus has just said, like, no greater love for this than the one who lays down his life for his friends. And so Peter is showing some love in this aspect um, towards Jesus, reflecting this agape love. In verse 38, Jesus replies, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. And again, we talked about this a couple weeks ago where, where Peter goes on and he denies Jesus three times, but later at the reconciliation, um, in Peter's repentance, uh, Jesus forgives him three times, asking, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Uh, and so there's reflection of Jesus showing that selfless, sacrificial love that desires the best for Peter, even though he already knows Peter's going to deny him three times. The other thing that's really interesting in this, um, there's so much within these passages. Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. So church tradition holds that Peter ultimately uh, died crucified as well, um, but upside down. And, and so Peter was making this claim of love, like, I'll go, I'll die. And Jesus is saying, you can't do it now, but later you will. And church tradition again holds that ultimately that's how Peter ended up dying, was in the same way, but he didn't want to be um, crucified the same as Jesus, uh, and so he asked for it to be upside down. Again, this reflection of love that's not anchored to this world. It's not a love that holds on to even our own life or things that are temporary here, but, but looking towards eternity, the reality of Jesus' existence, sacrificial for one another, serving towards one another. And, and it's not all uh, about death, because Jesus' command to love one another shows his love for us here and now. In just a few chapters, in John chapter 15, uh, we pick this up in verse 9. Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. Like, just think of how God the Father loves Jesus. Like, like so much that he speaks from heaven saying, this is my son who I approve. Right? He sends angels to minister to him. This, the way that God the Father has loved Jesus, Jesus is saying, I love you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. I'm telling you that I love you the way that the Father loves me so that your joy is complete. This word complete within the Greek is teleos. 
It means complete, but it also means filled to the brim. In other words, our joy in this life should be full to the brim with the understanding that Jesus loves us the way that the Father loved him. Uh, That's the love that he has. Verse 13, no one has greater love than this. um, Sorry, verse 12, your joy may be complete. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. So again, he's reiterizing this command. Love one another as I have loved you. Which is how? The way that the Father loved Jesus. No greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends because I've made known to you everything I've heard from my Father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. This is what I command you. Love one another. So again, over and over here, the night that he was betrayed, he's commanding, love each other. Love each other the way that I've loved you. Love each other the way that the fathers loved Jesus. Love one another. But how do we do this? How do we show this? Throughout scriptures, there's a number of different things. Um, Last week, or the week before, we talked about Philippians chapter 2. In having the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, who gave up equality with God in order to die. And that's that selfless, sacrificial, uh, humble uh, service towards one another. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 gives us another glimpse into this. Um, we see this at a lot of weddings. Love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, it's not boastful or arrogant. Not rude, not self-seeking, it's not irritable, does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. We hear this at a lot of weddings because it's a good love for a husband and wife to reflect to one another. The word within this passage in chapter 13 is agape. It is that selfless, sacrificial love that desires the best for the other person. It's applicable towards marriages. However, within the context of this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is talking about the church being unified by the Holy Spirit and serving one another. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is talking about the church serving one another in unity through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the intent of this love that is patient, this love that is kind, that doesn't envy or boast, that's not arrogant, that bears all things, believes all things, endures all things, is meant for this right here. Husbands and wives can reflect it to one another, but it's meant for us as a body of believers brought together by the Holy Spirit to show this love towards one another. Ephesians chapter 5 puts it this way. Pay careful attention then to how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making most of the time because the days are evil. We talked about this last week during Easter. The, the fact that the people that don't believe that God exists do a better job of living according to their reality, their limited sense of reality, than Christians do living with the idea that God exists and he died for me. That's what this is saying, is pay attention to how you live. Do it wisely, making most of the time, because the days are evil. 
do it wisely in full reconciliation, full recognition of your love by God, the way that God the Father loves Jesus, that you are set free from sin and death, that it has no hold on you, that, that your eternity is anchored in Jesus at the cross instead of your own actions. Live your life according to these truths. Uh, understand what the Lord's will is. Verse 18, don't be drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord. Give thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. So again, this love for one another is meant to be communal. It's meant to be within a community. It's, it's not this little isolated thing like, oh, Jesus loves me, and it is a good thing to acknowledge that. But it's not fully expressed until Jesus loves me and he loves you and let's do life together. Because my desire is for your best. And your desire is for my best. And as we do that together, everybody ministering to one another, we become knit together in a way that only the Holy Spirit can do, which then Jesus says, by this love for one another, the world will know that you are my disciples. This is that love. It's not just this, hey, brother, I love you. Um, how was fantasy football this week? Yeah, cool. Like, I'm glad that I beat you. You know, all right, let's move on. It's how are you doing? How is your soul doing? What can I pray for you? It's seeking like, Holy Spirit, do you have anything for me to, to be praying for my brother or sister? Do you have anything that I need to be sharing with them? If they're sharing something with me, Holy Spirit, is, is this true? Do I need to act upon this? When we gather, it's not just about coming and being a consumer, but it's how do we serve one another? Ephesians 4 has it said this way. In verse 11, uh, he himself, this is Jesus, gave some, and this is talking about gifts in men or, or gifts to people, to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Our church culture through hundreds of years has really started to reverse this. In the concept of the pastors, the teachers, the apostles, the, the prophets, they're the one in front of everyone. They're the one that does the work of the ministry. They're the one. If you want your neighbor to be saved, like, like all you have to do is to get them in front of a pastor. We chuckle at that. But that's the way a lot of churches over time have been run. But yet what it's saying here is, is that if the prophets, apostles, evangelists, pastors, and teachers are doing their job right, you are equipped for the work of ministry. That I am equipped for the work of ministry. That we all do the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith, the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity. That word maturity here um, uh, again, is teleos, fullness, completeness. We're grown to this completeness with a stature measured by Christ's fullness, 
by ministering to one another. Not by how good of a job you do sitting there and listening to me on a Sunday morning. But rather, the measure of our maturity in Jesus as a church is how we minister to one another. It's how we interact with one another. It's how we love one another. And to the extent that we do that, then we find verse 14. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by, every, by human cunning with cleverness and the dis- techniques of deceit. That's what happens when you have churches that are just based on, let's listen to what the preacher says. If that's all a church is based on, it works until, oh, I like what this person is saying. Let me go there. Oh, I like what this person is saying. Let me go over there. Oh, I like what this person... And it's the itching ears described in Timothy. Because it's all based on what one person is saying. But what this is saying is if we're ministering to one another, if we're serving one another, if we're sacrificially loving without expectation of return, but desiring the best for the other person and taking care of their needs, not just how is this weekend, but how is your soul, then if we do that, we are knit together in a way that we're no longer tossed around by every wind of teaching, human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. And this would include not just religious, but political, spiritual, the things within our news. If we're serving one another, we won't be blown around by the next new thing because we're anchoring each other in Jesus Christ. Verse 15, speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who was the head, Jesus Christ. From him the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. We need all of you. For us to work properly, we need each one of us to minister to one another. So what Jesus is saying again where he says, my command is love one another as I have loved you. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I was talking about how the room was kind of set up. And, and we came in and why we kind of mirrored that a little bit. And one of the reasons was uh, you can see each other right now. Like, it struck me when the, when the chairs were, like, against the opposite walls, like, you would been forced to stare at each other the whole time, right? Which would have been kind of awkward, and so we kind of made a compromise, and, and we're set up like this. But as we set this up, I'm like, every other Sunday, you're going to stare at each other's the back of your head, <laughs> right? Like, like, you're either staring at somebody's hair or me, unless somebody turns around and does a stretch or something like that, Right? And I don't think that's the way it's meant to be. And, and so honestly, as this was part of a test to be like, oh, maybe this is a new seating arrangement. The, the more that I've gone through this passage, the more that I've stood up here, the, the more I like the fact that you can see each other's faces. And maybe someday the seating arrangement will be much more like a circle or something like that. Uh, because I think it's important. Jesus did something absolutely profound in John chapter 19. Um, as he was on the cross... And I don't have this verse in here because um, it struck me as, as we were sitting here and kind of facing each other. And uh, 
as Jesus is on the cross in verse 25, standing by it uh, was his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved, who again was John, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. And so Jesus, sitting up there on the cross, looks down and says, here's your mother, here's your son. He did something just as profound through his blood on the cross for us. Where he's made us into a family. He's made us into something he's brought together by his spirit and by his blood. And so as we sit in this room, able to see each other's faces, look, here's your brother. Look, here's your sister. Here's a spiritual father. Here's a spiritual son. Here's a spiritual mother. Here's a spiritual daughter. Don't look at me. Look at each other. This is what he died to give you. He died to give you each other. And to the extent that we learn to minister to one another, the world will then say, they know Jesus. To the extent that we learn to serve one another and minister to one another, we will not be tossed around by any political, any spiritual, any religious thing. Because we're with our brothers and our sisters, our mothers and our fathers and our sons and our daughters in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that you teach us how to do this. That we not just be a church that shows up on a Sunday morning in order to consume, in order to listen, in order to fill our tanks, to go through the week. Lord, I pray that by your Spirit that, that the focal point of our church would no longer even be Sunday mornings, but in our lives with one another on a day-to-day basis, ministering to one another, knitting together so that our joy might be complete, that, that our maturity as a church might be complete as we live and act and minister in the way that you have died and designed for it to take place. Lord, we're messy. And we make mistakes and we will offend one another just the way family do. But Lord, help us to remember that the love that we're to have for one another is agape. It is selfless. It is sacrificial. It does not expect return, but it always desires the best for the other. Lord, let us have your mindset, considering others' needs is greater than our own. Guide us and direct us in full service to you in all things. And we trust that you'll grow us and guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. just a second we're going to stand and worship but I I feel like there might be something else but I don't know what it is Uh, so does anybody feel like they have something from the Holy Spirit specifically for us in a group along the lines of of this morning do you want to come up here do you want to just say it and then I'll that's right I have a microphone
some of you guys know that I'm a woman. And God put it on my heart, don't give up. I had a hard year and four months living where I am. And I wanted to give up so many times. But with you guys praying for me, I was able to deal with it because it is not an easy place to live. But I don't have a lot of money, and it's hard to find some place that you don't need three times the amount of rent just to get in there. And I have not had no renting history for over 10 years. And they want at least the last three years of your renting history. So I was a little nervous because I only make so much money. I have enough to pay the bills and stuff, but not a whole lot much. What they want, I didn't have. But I kept praying and have had a lot of you guys praying for me. And Jesus says, don't give up. Mm. He's talking to all of you because I know a lot of you have a lot of different kinds of problems and you want to give up. But God says, don't give up. If he can do for me with what I have or don't have, he can do wonderful things for a lot of you because you've got a lot more than I ever have. And I'm comfortable with what he gave me. It may not be the biggest, but it's my space because I haven't lived by myself for 11 years. And it's hard to live with other people. Especially, I mean, if it's your own family you're married to, it's easy. But, <laughs> but it's, God has brought me, and I get to move next Saturday, and I am so excited and so thankful for all your prayers. But God says, don't give up. That is the most important thing ever. No matter what you have or don't have, don't give up. Today's message was a, a message that I've been praying for the church for a long time, um, and I'm really was really excited to hear it um, about love. Uh, there's also a scripture that says, if you um, don't rebuke your child, then you hate them. And I love what Josh was saying about the different ways Jesus showed his love, and it, sometimes it was tossing over tables. And um, we all have different giftings. And I was telling Amanda this morning, my husband had showed me. A video of her singing this incredible opera and I'd never heard her sing like that and I cried um, and I heard her let it go a few times uh, to hit these notes that were just incredible um, and I cried because I was like wow Amanda has a hidden talent I didn't know that it was I knew she was a good singer but that's incredible and um, and I thought of the parable of um, well I thought it was like a parable that we all have these hidden talents and each one is so important and God wants to use the church in this incredible way. But he's also calling for a spirit of repentance. Um, he often, um, one of my giftings, it's, it's not that beautiful voice like that, but one of my giftings is that the Lord uses me to pray for deliverance for people on individual issues. So he often shows me, he probably showed me five different things to pray for, for last night for individuals that had um, issues. They need to be purified. 
and um, he's, he's shown me things that might scare most people. Um, and so I don't know if I'm to release those yet, but it is very important to know that the Lord wants to defend you, that you need to humble yourself under his mighty hand, that he would be able to do that because the enemy is around like a roaring lion. And when the song was playing, I actually, I loved the song, but I didn't agree with it. It said, when darkness is holding on to me, the truth is we hold on to darkness. When we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, the darkness cannot touch us. And so I am just praying for all of you, a spirit of repentance, that you are purified. Um, those who look for Jesus to come will purify themselves. And so that is the message that's been on my heart, that many people have a lot of spiritual things that they need delivered of. And if you abide in the Lord, it's okay. You don't have to be perfect. But when you recognize that, repent, pray, fast, whatever you need to do, let go. If you do not feel love in your heart for someone, then get right with the Lord because it's your problem, not theirs. So I just deliver that message not out of shame or condemnation, but of utter love, the love of the Father that sees that many people are in a place they are not ready for Jesus to come again. And I want you to all have the full reward of what he has waiting for you. It's not a place that you don't have salvation. It's a place that you lose your reward. So I want to see everyone in heaven with me when Jesus comes to get us with this beautiful reward. So anyway, I just wanted to share that. Uh, one thing that I really appreciated that Michelle had said is that this is not in shame, this is not in condemnation. We all have things that we need to work on, and what repentance is, is not feeling that we're failures. It's not feeling we're not good enough. It's not feeling like we can't do it. What repentance is saying is, I'm just going to walk towards Jesus and stop doing these things that he's called me to do. So again, not shame, not condemnation, but if the Lord is revealing in your heart uh, something specific that, that you need to repent of, that you need to stop doing, that you need to let go of, let go of those things and walk towards him. James chapter 4 is, is where that's in. And so that is, uh, it's a way to bring it into the light. Uh, so by bringing something to the light, it actually takes away that power of guilt, of shame, um, and honestly, the easiness of falling back into whatever it is because there's this sense of accountability and moving forward. I think it's a good word for us to be able to look at if God's calling us to minister to one another more deeply um, then we need to like deal with some of this junk too. So thank you for that. All right, anything else? Just take another second here. Yeah, John. So my family and I haven't really been to Mercy Hill in uh, some time now, I think it was um, around the time when COVID happened and uh, politics, you name it. Um, and today really spoke to me because I really felt like politics, um, COVID and things that shouldn't get in front of you going to church um, truly did for us. And it wasn't up until probably a few months ago when my wife and I and my children started going back to church. Um, and I just want to say that I really miss y'all. Um, 
and I don't want to play church, and I also want to find where in church I can use my gifts as well as for my children and wife, because we truly do love church. We love you all. We missed you all, um, and that's really it. Just want to come back to church and, and not mess around. I actually really like those last words. Uh, let's do church and not mess around. But let's not do church the way that church has just been done for tradition's sake. Let's do it like it says in here. Uh, let's not mess around. Let's stand as a church and worship this morning as we close. Mm -hmm.